one thing to think about is in the vast majority of our cases, at least I would say over 70% probably, the number one asset is the real estate asset. Usually that's what you're either the one house or the multiple pieces of property that you're dealing with. And so it's very important in that aspect just to have some basic general background information. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today we're excited to welcome James Victor Esch to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Victor is an attorney with Cotton Schmidt living in Corpus Christi, Texas. He's a military veteran, having enlisted in the United States Marine Corps out of high school and serving for four years of active duty before attending college at the University of Arkansas. Victor went on to get his JD from the University of Arkansas School of Law. He began his legal career as a title attorney, but went on to become a family lawyer. He has 15 years of litigation experience in family law and probate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Thank you, Holly. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so, uh, you know, and it was a great introduction from my my own personal history. Uh, from my legal background, uh, as you mentioned, I started as a title attorney. Um, a lot of our colleagues probably came into family law thinking, oh, this is what I love. Or, you know, some some of us, I should say, come into thinking that this is the uh, my life path. I was not one of those, though. Um, Me neither. About, <laughs> <laughs> well, about around the time of the real estate bubble, when that all crashed, uh, I went with it. And uh, family law was what basically paid the bills, at least initially. Uh, and then, I, you know, I I became I think I'm good at it, if not great. But I will leave that for others to decide. I, I do feel at least I'm competent enough to. Um, practice and enjoy enjoy this area along with a few my other areas of litigation. So, how would you describe your current practice? So, I I uh, took some time off of as many of you, uh, some of your audience may know. I actually practiced up in the Dallas Metroplex for uh, about fifteen years. Uh, my family moved down to the Corpus area and uh, took about a year off. And I'm now started with consummate. I do litigation. And specifically, um, all litigation or all civil litigation, I should say, uh, primarily in the areas of probate uh, litigation. And then we do some insurance defense and I'm, I'm working on building my family law practice as well. So uh, back up from the corpus area from from when I was in Dallas. So. so did you work for that same firm when you were in Dallas or is this a new position? No, I was actually with um, Alex Skexy. PLC. Uh, she's a good friend and I was working with her um, right before the pandemic. I joined her firm and then the move happened sort of uh, incidental afterwards to that. And then before that, I managed the legal aid office and then I had my own practice uh, for about five, six years prior to that. So kind of a meandering thing, but um, all, all has been in the civil litigation area. So today we're kind of kind of dive back to your title attorney days a little bit and talk about kind of the intersection of family law and real estate. I think a lot of family lawyers have little to no background when it comes to real estate, but it's something we have to deal with a lot when we're dealing with divorces. So why do you think this is such an important topic for family lawyers to think about? Well, and that's a great question. Um, I think in with regards to family law and real estate, a lot of times, as you were saying, a lot of turn, a lot of family law attorneys don't have a lot of background in that. And I would say one thing to think about is in the vast majority of our cases, at least I would say over 70 percent, probably the number one asset is the real estate asset. Usually that's what you're either the one house or the multiple pieces of property that you're dealing with. And so it's very important in that aspect just to have some basic general background information, uh, kind of understand the transactions and how that works. The other thing is, is I think important for practitioners to understand is that 
your mis- if you made a fatal mistake, and hopefully some of the things we're talking about today, uh, there's some redundancy if you build into your practice, you don't have to worry about those fatal mistakes. But if you make a fatal mistake, you may not learn of it until 5, 10, 15, 20 years later. And that could be a very <laughs> awakening call. Uh, 15 years later, you really turn the handle this, what, what were you thinking? Um, and so that, that I think is kind of important, at least if not just to understand that very basic thing, because uh, you know, you, you put in there a refi, you know, you got to refi the house in three years, they never do it. Right. And then all of a sudden somebody passes away and now you've got a whole nother thing that you've got to be dealing with. So again, sometimes you don't find about uh, some of those thing mistakes or that you may have made until way later. Uh, if you don't watch out some just common practices. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I always encourage people who are thinking they can DIY their divorce or they can, you know, it's going to be make it hostile and contested if I hire a lawyer. So, you know, the other side wants us to do this on our own. Um, A lot of times I see those fatal mistakes coming in the form of DIY divorces where somebody comes, you know, my divorce decree didn't require a refinance and I can't, you know, I can't get a house now. What are we going to do about that? nothing <laughs> you're gonna wait until wait until they sell it or refinance it all on their own free will you're stuck but you know i think it is definitely a possibility that attorneys can make those mistakes too especially when they are newer attorneys and maybe they don't know what they don't know so you definitely want to be sure you know what you're doing when it comes to deeds and what you put in your decree and all of that well as you know that you know a lot of times you know in family law we, we can come sometimes get a little relaxed in the sense that, oh, we always have modifications of, you know, and I don't say that flippantly, but sometimes you'd like, oh, I can always come back and modify. And as you know, and a lot of our, the audience here knows, uh, that's not the case in uh, property division. So you get, you get a very short window on that. So. So when we were chatting before we started recording, you mentioned um, your biggest pet peeve relates to legal descriptions. So talk a little bit about that. Tell us what you mean. Well, and uh, so when we were when you when you mentioned the about speaking and about this topic, that was one of the things that I I recall coming on probably from the background as a title attorney coming into family practice and seeing um, sometimes you can and frankly you can spot a family law practitioner that doesn't have a lot of real estate practice basically on that final decree very fast, um, and usually it's on that legal description. Um, one, there's not one at all, <laughs> um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But the uh, other one is basically you know. Um, the legal description that they use is not the right one, or it appears to be something that they, I can almost tell you immediately it came from the, you know, central appraisal district. Um, and that's common, but that's not what I would consider the official legal description. In fact, it's not. And so, you know, it's important to know where to go find those, where to go through and um, make sure you're getting the right source document. And there's nothing wrong with uh, starting with the central appraisal district, but certainly not where I would end by any means. So. So that, I mean, it's interesting you say that because it's, I know a lot of people who that's where they go for the legal description. If we don't have a deed already from the client didn't give us one or something like that, well, I'll go with the central appraisal district. What's the difference typically between what you would find on the appraisal district website and what the true legal description is? So part of this is the inner work and understand the inner workings of how kind of counties work in general. So, you know, we have a district clerk, a county clerk, and then there's agency or entities that are process things outside of there. One of those is that central appraisal district. Okay. And it's important to understand district and county in a minute. We'll talk about that later. But the central appraisal district is essentially, you know, they're responsible for the tax stuff. 
And so they do want to have a current role of who owns property. That's important to them. Um, but that's not their main focus. And so when you, uh, when you go apply to this uh, appraisal district, you know, they have some internal processes that try to check the, those names, but that they're not, that's not what the, if you ever make a mistake, nobody's going to go back and go, uh, you know, well, I checked at the CAD and they're like, oh, that's fine. Then you were fine. No, because the official public records are they at the county records. All um, real estate records in Texas, official public holder of the record is the county clerk. And so when you go to the central appraisal district, they're filling in that legal description and the ownership information as part of their taxing duties, not for the, the public records. And why that's important is, for example, that legal description, it's usually very short, it's a very short line that they have. And if you're in a platted uh, city and county or you're dealing with a subdivision that's platted, and what I mean by that is it's got a lot one, block A, or you know that type of legal description, you probably are going to be okay uh, putting the, the county at the end in the state. And you're probably going to get by with it, assuming that the person that typed that in actually accurately typed in the legal description that came from, guess what, the official one that came from the county. So it's a great place to first start. Uh, to see who the owner of the property maybe is and then the uh, legal description, but it's not where it would end. The other little asterisk I would give with ownership, it's again, a great place to start. But one, um, I have seen CADs change just based on obituaries of, uh, by the, uh, the CAD office on news reports. Um, even once a local knowledge, the <laughs> small area, they just knew that this person passed away and they knew that the only son was. And so they updated and there, you know, when you look at the history, it just should blank, you know, the source is blank. So, um, so my point y'all be in CADs are great places to get great information. It tells you the last deeds. A lot of times it tells you information about the property legal. It's a great starting point, but when you get down to draft and that the legal description, you really should go back to that deed that they, that your client came into title to that property, whatever that is, whether it's a deed or an order or something like that. So if your client doesn't have the deed or copy of the deed, where, what's the easiest way to go about finding it? So as we were talking about, if you effectively, most places you can type in the county, uh, you know, Dallas County official public records, uh, deed records, and it will pop up a link. Uh, But the official place you need to go to is the county clerk's office. So if you call the county clerk's office or go to the website, a lot of times they'll have a place that you can link in. And most of the studies on one system, there are some counties that are using different electronic systems if you want to do it remotely. Um, and you can navigate that depending on the county. Uh, and you just type in the name and the information and it'll pull up the deed and you usually can download them. If that county, some of the smaller counties are not accessible that way or they're using there, you may have to call them and order it physically from there. But most of our larger counties, you can do it directly online. In fact, a lot of my research is done directly like that. So we all refer to our houses or business or whatever by a street address, 123 Main Street in whatever city, right? Why isn't it sufficient just to use the street address in your divorce decree? Um, the street address doesn't really exist any phys- doesn't exist physically, frankly. I think that's kind of the easiest thing. Um, the counties and the postal office, I don't know exactly how they assign the names, but those are just designations assigned by them. Um, and so they don't have any legal significance. Uh, that legal significance is that county, again, kind of goes back to just the way our public, or, you know, our, our land records are handled is that county rec clerk is the one that goes there and they're the ones that's responsible for maintaining that. So that's kind of the, the main point of any of that is the county records is the first place to go to. So, so if you have a decree, it's already been signed, made, may have been signed years ago. 
and it only references the street address. Is there anything you can do about it? <laughs> Maybe. You know, there's lots of different maybe legal options that can kind of, kind of come out there. Hopefully, some of the things we may talk about in a minute on the the creed, what you should be doing, uh, the types of deeds and stuff, that would um, hopefully have been corrected. Because I have seen decrees where they don't even mention the legal description, but then you go to the county records and they did all the deeds, they did all the ancillary documents afterwards, and it's all fine. Um, having the legal description in your decree just saves you a heartache, that redundancy I'm talking about um, uh, at the beginning, uh, that if you did just leave a for example, take the two decrees, one with just a, a street address and one with a legal description. The street address, if you fail to do those deeds and those ancillary documents to transfer a legal title with the county, that's going to do you no good. You're going to have to do other things to make that happen. If you include that legal description in the decree along with the invest in somebody, investor language, in other words, your investor in a title is invested in you, and divest your language, that's important from the other person, then you can actually take that and just go record in the county records. And that's sufficient. You don't need anybody's de- uh, decree um, deeds or anything else to file because that will transfer title just by the order of the court. So if you just have a legal uh, street address, if you're in that situation, you're really left with only one potential option. And that is asking the court to clarify the order, uh, specifically clarifying the legal description in there. Um, and you probably can get that done. I, I think most courts, if you've addressed... If you have at least put an addressed property in the decree, then you're probably going to be able to get at least a uh, clarification on what the description was on the property. So, okay. but, but the point with all that is you have to go back to court, cost money, and it takes some time to do this. Right. So um, you were talking about um, divest language and things like that. If you had that in your decree, um, you wouldn't necessarily need deeds to transfer the title. So if you, what I've seen in decrees is, okay, you have your legal description of the property, you know, this property at 123 Main Street with legal description, whatever is awarded to the wife. And then later in the decree, you have language saying uh, the movement of title language, basically saying that this document decree should be enough to transfer title. If you don't have any language beyond that, can it be used to transfer the title. Absolutely. Yeah. So using the legal, so I like to think of the legal description and then also the other language of you've got to go sign this deed and this deed of trust and all this, that additional language in addition. I like to think of those as election of remedies. So I have one remedy of going down to the clerk and just filing it. Um, my other remedy is, you know, contempt or enforcement actions, not necessarily contempt, but maybe, but other enforcement actions with the court. So the legal description in the decree saves you a lot of headache <laughs> in case that other stuff doesn't get done because you can just use that decree. Now, the big difference is, as you know, most the uh, special warranty deeds and perhaps the DOTSAs are just, you know, 10, maybe up to if you had them all 10 pages between all of them, whereas the decree a lot of times is 40, 50, and you get charged by the page. So um, usually it makes a lot more sense just uh, economic or money-wise to do it though. Plus, if you're filing that 40 or 50 page decree with the county clerk, you're now putting a lot of other personal information out there in the county clerk's records when it really yeah, should just be the transfer of property. Yeah, and then a lot of more, and, and in place that a lot more people look in. I mean, most people don't go to the district clerk website to go look at decrees and stuff. A lot of people go out to the official public records all the time to get stuff and sometimes just to be nosy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I want to be accused of that. <laughs> so um one of the topics when you know whenever people come on the podcast they kind of give me a list of things to talk about and one of the things that you had talked about was 
pro forma. So tell us what is pro forma and what does that really mean? So it's a great question. Um, so a lot of times you will see, uh, you may see, you'll see this line. Texas has got uh, homestead rules. Obviously, if you uh, own a property that is community property and it's your homestead, before you can alienate that property, do anything with it to go through um, and encumber it, you've got to get the consent of your spouse. All that fancy mean, all that fancy language basically means is if you want to do something with the house legally with title in some form or fashion, get money or whatever, your spouse has got to sign off on that. And we call that pro forma signing. They're not, they're not assuming any legal obligation or anything else. They're just consenting to there. So a lot of times you will sometimes see it on the deed, but you will definitely see on the deed of trust to secure assumption. And if you're looking at the, uh, and you should see it on the deed as well. You a lot of times won't see it on the note though. So if you think about the three, you got the deed and you got this deed of trust, which we'll talk about. And then that note, which is the actual obligation under, you'll see the person that owes the money on that sign it. But you often won't see the spouse find that because they're not taking a legal obligation. But they do have to sign the deeds that are filed on the county record, showing that they've consented to whatever you're doing. This episode of the Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm, providing family law appellate representation across Texas. For more information, visit draperfirm.com or call 469-715-6801. So speaking about deeds, I know you've mentioned several different kinds of deeds already in this discussion, but... A lot of attorneys, especially newer family lawyers, may not know the difference between all the different types of deeds and when you want to use which kind. So um, first of all, what is the difference between a conveyance document and a deed of trust? So a conveyance document, that's a um, a great distinction. I like how you worded that. A conveyance document is any document that is transferring title from one person to another. I actually... We all think of those as deeds, um, and that that is on there. There's a couple of ones that we use in Texas that are not actually what I consider deeds. Um, but conveyance document is anything that actually transfers title from one to another. Um, I would actually, me personally, I actually think of orders from probate court and stuff like that as well because it transfers title. But I don't think in a strict sense they are because that's just a court order. But if you think of a conveyance document, anything that transfers title to another, that's filed in county. With regards to deeds of trust... There's no conveyance on, on them. And in fact, I would and I would just I would never use it as a source document. What it does, what does happen is it puts a lien on the property and says you have a mortgage. And if you don't pay it, here's the terms where I can come back and get that house or get that piece of property. Not necessarily a house. I guess it could be any property, but it's not conveying anything. And in fact, if you don't have a deed, you don't have anything to encumber. So even if you sign a deed to trust but never sign a deed, without ever doing anything more, you've done nothing. So deed of trust really is just evidence in a lien on the property and then providing the terms in case they need to foreclose and what they need to do on that. So those are the two different broad categories. And of course, underneath conveyance, there's lots of individual ones. So let's talk about those. Um, what are the different types of conveyance documents and when would we want to use any particular one? <laughs> For some of this, may go back to law school 101, but a lot of us that do family law, this is a, um, a common all the time. So in Texas, we we generally convey property using special warranty deeds. And other jurisdictions, they may use a general warranty deed. They're both conveyance documents. It just is the length of time that the seller is um, yeah the seller is warranting the property. But the point is, it is a conveyance document. It conveys property from one to another. It actually effectuates the transfer of legal interest, the legal title. As we said, deed of trust don't do that. The other ones that kind of come up sometimes you may see, um, you'll sometimes hear uh, a deed. Well, and I guess 
like a gift deed, for example, and a gift deed is um, you think about a normal transaction, you have a buyer seller, somebody transfers money. So in a gift deed, you would have somebody that just uh, uh, just gives it for their love and affection, just usually between family members. Um, and that's usually where you see gift deeds. But several others that you kind of hear that are out there, for example, um, sometimes you'll hear uh, often this the term quick claim. Um, and I'll put in quotes right now, quick claim deed. I do not consider a quick claim a deed at all. I, and some of my real estate uh, colleagues may disagree with that terminology, but it's really, you'll sometimes hear the same thing called by estoppel, by uh, deed by estoppel. They're effectively the same thing. If essentially you're, you're not really conveying anything. You're just saying that if I ever had an interest in, or if I have an interest in it, I'm not, I'm not um, making that claim. So you're just basically that estoppel argument. Um, I'm, even if I were to try to make a claim on it, I'm now stopped because I've signed this document. So it's not really a deed in that sense, but it does affect title in the sense that that person's not claiming any title. Uh, that gets a little more in a nuanced thing. Um, there are reasons to do that. Uh, most cases, I would always, I, it would be a rare situation uh, with a community property uh, home that I would use a quick claim deed uh, because the spouse generally has a, a legal interest in the property and can make a conveyance. In other words, they can sort of say, I own this property. I need to convey it. And in those, that's when you need a deed. So let's say you have a situation where they don't, you know, we were talking about the warranties, you know, special warranty deed, the, the sellers um, saying, I guarantee I own everything in this. The alternative to, for example, a quick claim deed in that situation where you have a spouse would be a deed without warranty. And that is an actual, so if you think about it, quick claim and deed without warranty sound very similar in the sense that they both affect title, but the deed actually transfer, says, I own this and I'm transferring it. Whereas a quick claim says, I'm not sure if I do, but if I do, I'm not making any claims. on. So if you had done a quick claim deed for, you know, thinking that you were going to transfer wife's interest to husband on divorce or whatever, deed's been signed, it's been registered with the county clerk, uh, and husband wants to go sell that property. Is the quick claim deed going to be sufficient for him to do that down the road? Or is ex-wife now going to have to cooperate because... She didn't do a special warranty deed. You're probably going to be fine. I say talk to my title, talk to your title attorney. Um, frankly, um, at the end of the day, if you have a legal description, you're going to be perfectly fine. Um, I would say in the uh, decree. But if you are using a quick claim deed and you did a transaction like that, say five years ago, and it comes up, generally speaking, even the your title company is going to look in the whole at the whole circumstances. So they're going to see the divorce. They're, so they're likely to understand that. Um, so you're probably not going to have a problem. Where you do get in problems is title companies generally will not insure over quick claim deeds. So um, in the family law context, you're probably not going to run into a lot of them. And if you do, or a lot of problems with that, if you do, I'd probably check another title uh, title company um, and see if that before I start any legal considerations, I would just see if I can get another title company. Uh, but that's generally where the, the quick claim deed is going to give you problems and transactions in the future is the sale of the property. And that's where it would likely come up, I think. So what about talking about deeds of trust? Where are those going to come into play in a divorce? Yeah, so family law is, has a, well, I think it's, it's unique. I guess it's unique to me because it's the first time I ever heard of it. Um, well, first time I ever dealt with it directly. And title attorney, I've seen them all the time. I just kind of ignored them. But you're talking, um, I think you may be referring to uh, the deed of trust versus a deed of trust to secure assumption. And so, you know, when I was working as a tile we just, you know, oh, it's a lien on the property. I didn't really have to pay a lot of attention. I just started out and I was like, okay, I know it's a lien on the property. I don't have to worry about it. 
But in the family law context, we do a lot of times do handle deeds of trust to secure assumptions. And we have oil toolings that sometimes that come in addition with that. But effectively what that is, is just like you go to a lender, you, the lender is going to give, is going to take a mortgage out in exchange for you have uh, given you money. In the divorce context, your spouse is going to let you have the house in exchange for that deed of trust to secure assumption. And what that does is effectively say that spouse is guaranteeing that, okay, I'm going to continue paying on the mortgage while you're not, uh, even though you're moving out, I'm going to continue paying on the mortgage um, and go forward with that and guarantee the other spouse. Now, if you fail, that allows the spouse to come in with a remedy to go through and foreclose on that lien and evict that, you know, your ex-spouse out. Where I have seen this come up, and you may have as well, is where one spouse has done the deed, but never ever, nobody ever did the deed of trust secure assumption. And so you have a spouse that's living in there and maybe stops paying, paying on it. And the spouse that moved out, who's still on the note, because mind you, obviously the family court doesn't have a jurisdiction over that lender, still on the note, still obligated, can't do anything about the spouse still living in there because they failed to do that deed of trust secure assumption. I think it's a mistake some attorneys make to think it's enough to have a deed of trust to secure assumption without also requiring a refinance requirement or having a requirement that if it's not refinanced within a certain amount of time, you can force the sale. Because just as you mentioned, the lender doesn't care what your divorce decree says. The lender doesn't care about the deed of trust to secure assumption. They want the bills paid. Yeah, for them, they they don't. In fact, if it's a major lender, you know, they have regulations that how much property they can keep on books and things like that, as far as real estate owned, REO properties and stuff like that. So um, from a lender, it's not personal, it's a business transaction. And so they're going to collect where they can. And, um, you know, the divorce is a separate, a secondary issue. So. So one other topic that we were going to kind of dive into a little bit today is dealing with separate property issues in the context of divorce. Um, oftentimes we'll say, you know, somebody owned the house before the marriage or someone has inherited real estate. When we're talking about temporary orders and while the divorce is pending, what can a court do with that temporary or that separate property? So this is an interesting topic because I think sometimes as uh, some, especially new family law attorneys think, oh, it's separate property. You hear that term, the court has no authority over separate property. It's mine. You can go on. That is not the case during the pendency of the case. Uh, during the pendency of the case, for one, you may think it's separate property. It may be very, very well. Everybody's knows it's separate property, but a court has not made that determination. Um, and so from a practical standpoint, it's all property. And so when we're looking at, for example, at temporary orders, the court has the authority to go through and make orders related to the use and possession of the property. And so it is possible for separate property, especially in like a separate property marital home, court to issue an order saying, you know, one spouse can stay there, et cetera, and what have you. That's not necessarily, that is not the same at the end of trial, but there are temporary orders. That, that's somewhat, I think, is a distinction in the code. It's not really a distinction in the code, but maybe something that's not well thought out, maybe. I don't know. Do you think it is wise for attorneys to get into whether or not something is separate property or not at a temporary orders hearing? Oh, that's a great question. I guess it would depend on what the separate property we're talking about. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's certainly wise to start having that conversation if you haven't. Um, and especially, for example, in the same the same situation where you're talking where there is a separate property house. Let's say, well, let's just assume there's a separate property house and the court's making orders related to that. It's really good to have the conversation for one, just an economy standpoint. If you, if everybody knows that that was an inherited house and it's certainly going to be there, 
maybe we need to look at some other options um, for the for the spouse that doesn't have an interest in that legal property, because otherwise you're looking at double moves. You're looking at a lot of uh, extra expense. And so I, I understand I'm not I don't live in a fairy tale world. I've been doing it for 15 years. I know litigation and family law. But it, having that conversation at first is very important because it can save you a lot of um, a lot of pain. And then, frankly, you also and I, I agree whether it's this topic or any of them you, let you know where the other side is um, on that, whether or not you're going to have any disputes or what you need to if you need to be doing discovery in a certain area or something like that. So I certainly would be having that conversation as soon as possible. And especially if it's a major asset uh, and one, especially if you think there's going to be some litigation around it. So if you are dealing with a divorce and it has that inherited house or that separate property house, um, some sort of inherited or uh, separate property real estate, what should an attorney be doing to try and prove that separate property real estate? So as you, as you and Musvaranis knows, uh, everything's presumed to be uh, community property. And if it's acquired after the date of marriage, that entire inception and title doctrine, et cetera, that, hey, if it's acquired day of marriage or after it's community property with, with the exceptions that are laid out. And we've talked about a couple of those, one being inheritance or if, if it's by gift. So if I'm looking for those things, first thing I'm going to be looking for is hopefully that the date of purchase. I think that's actually the number one and primary question, obviously, is when was that purchase? When was that asset acquired? Um, and if it was before marriage, we know it. We know it automatically. There's really that's the easy one. Where it is a little more complicated, or I would say sometimes more, a lot more complicated, is where you have, or for example, by you have a piece of property and one one spouse is contributing money to the mortgage every year for ten years, and then you get a divorce. It was purchased before, so you have this dispute over money. And the, the law has got a conflict or not a conflict, but it says, you know, you, the court doesn't have authority to transfer legal title on those issues. So um, from an evidentiary standpoint, I want to know where the money's coming from, who's making those payments. So when the property was acquired, who's making the payments, who's the legal title? Are there any uh, agreements, uh, written agreements? Um, not necessarily verbal agreements are great. I love hearing about them, but they don't mean much uh, in the real estate world so much. But written, written agreements that people have written um, Explain what they intend or what have you. Did they ever? The other thing is, did they ever convert it to uh, community property, or was a piece of property ever? I'm not using the correct term right now, but was uh, converted to separate property, for example, through an agreement, rent agreement that's allowed. So all those questions, those documents are going to be really important. Um, the second thing is just the history and timeline of the parties and assets. I think that's very important, uh, and then uh, the relationships of the parties is going to be very important as well. Um, because that relationship can also affect what courts will consider the title. We go back to that. If it's a close relationship, it's more likely to be construed as a gift. Whereas if there's no relationship, sometimes that old term, that BFP, that bonafide purchaser rule will come to play. So we're just about out of time. But one of the questions I like to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is, if you could give one piece of advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? I would probably go through and encourage to find a mentor. I personally enjoy mentoring, but I, I find somebody, uh, a mentor. I would not have excelled in family law if I did not have some wonderful mentors in the Dallas area. There's absolutely, they know who they are and uh, it just wouldn't happen. All from everything from just very basic. So, so mentor is number one. Uh, and there's lots of places to find them. Get a, you know, the Dallas Bar Association. And if you're local, the Collin County, the local bar associations, get into the family law section. Uh, attend the meetings once, you know, at least once a quarter and uh, just talk with people because um, that's going to be really important. And then don't be afraid to ask a question. 
frankly, and I don't know how many times I sometimes ask opposing counsel questions, assuming that we have a relationship where it makes sense. But is don't ever be embarrassed saying I don't I don't I'm not familiar with this area. What's your thought on this process? You're not you're not giving up anything by doing that. You're just um, humbling yourself to do this. So that's what I would tell family attorney, uh, new family attorneys, especially um, a mentor, and never. It's easy to ask opposing counsel. Not familiar with this. Explain it to me like I'm a, a child or whatever, because um, <laughs> I need to know. And that's that gets uh, that there. And that's an easy conversation. I sometimes do that all the time, even now. I don't understand your position. Explain it to me like I don't understand, or explain it to me because I don't understand this area. Usually, most people are more than happy. This is why I think, or this is the role. So that would be what I would say to the new attorneys for sure. So where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? So, um, our website, our firm, I joined as an associate attorney with Cotton Schmidt. So they are welcome to find me at cottonschmidt.com. That's C-O-T-T-E-N. And that's with an E, S-C-H-M-I-D-T.com. Um, and of course, uh, welcome to call me directly in my office at 361-502-3031 or whatever anybody may need, but that's how you can get hold of them. I'm easy to find. Find my name and it's easy to find. I, that goes for most of us, I would imagine. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, For our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to leave us a review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.